Hey you, welcome to Taylor's Shapers of Influence podcast, where we discuss the people, places, and things that, well, influence us. We'll dissect the integrated worlds of marketing, pop culture, and everything in between, from fashion to sports to entertainment. We're not only creating conversations, we're leading them too. Join us. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shapers of Influence podcast. My name is Ebony Baker and I am the marketing coordinator for Taylor. On today's podcast, I will be discussing the importance of supporting historically Black colleges and universities with United Negro College Fund's Vice President of Strategic Partnerships and Institutional Programs, leader of the Institute for Capacity Building, and fellow HBCU graduate, Morehouse to be exact, Ed Smith-Lewis. Ed, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, same. You guys don't know this, but both Ed and myself are sporting our HBCU Perry. Mm -hmm. I am wearing, right, mine, the illustrious Tennessee State University, and he is rocking St. Augustine University. Hey, I'm a Morehouse man at heart. Right. I love all of our HBCUs. As do I, but of course we are biased <laughs> to ours. To jump right into this conversation, I would like to begin with an article that you wrote in Equity and Learning titled Morehouse Mystique, just one example of Black college excellence. I have to say that this piece was such a great read and your story about the first time you were introduced to HBCU culture truly resonated with me. May you please share with our audience what inspired you to attend an HBCU and a little bit of your experience. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you, it was luck. Ultimately inspired me to attend an HBCU. I don't know who told me, but someone very wise once said, luck is where opportunity meets preparation. Mm. And I think that's ultimately where I was at a time in my life where, you know, I grew up on the West Coast, Oakland, California, to be exact, West Oakland, California, if we wanted to get super specific. Um, And I'm a first generation high school graduate. Mm. And I was fortunate enough in my high school years to transfer from a public school to a private school, a fairly elite day school. And when it came time for college applications, they were IVs. Ivies are bust was sort of the approach. As a person who had never attended college or had anyone in my family attend college, I was afraid of not getting into the Ivies. I ended up applying to 37 institutions. I had a whole Excel spreadsheet. It was a whole thing. I'm a little neurotic (laughs) in that way. I ended up only having one HBCU on that list, and that was Morehouse. Um, At the time, my college counselors were sort of not approving of HBCU applications. I was considering a few. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember distinctly being in a college counselor's office and her telling me customer service at those institutions aren't as great. And you're likely to get more scholarships by going to these other institutions. And we're typically a top 100 institution. It was so interesting to not have that perspective. She didn't ask me about fit. She didn't ask me about about representation. She didn't ask me about any of those things when she was deciding which college I should go to. And, you know, no knock on Case Western Reserve, but that was her number one for me because I was analytically uh, a good student and I liked sort of the science engineering. I ended up being an econ major when I went to Morehouse. But Case Western Reserve, I don't know if you see this ponytail, but I'm not 
uh, Case Western Reserve student. Um, and so needless to say, I applied to 37 institutions. I got into 36 of them. Morehouse gave me a full ride. It was very exciting. And then I got a call from a pastor at Fifth Third Baptist Church. And the pastor said to me, eh, I heard you got into Morehouse. I want you to come to Sunday church with me. So I went to Sunday church. I'm in the pew listening to it because, you know, you get it offered by a pastor of Fifth Third Baptist Church. You go. I'm listening to the sermon. And before I do it, I think he's talking to me. I'm a member of this church. It is resonating with me. Before I knew it, he called my name, gave me this plaque and said, if you go to Morehouse, you get a thousand dollar scholarship and apply. Now, first generation student, I got excited. I said thousand dollars. I'm really excited about that, but that didn't sell me. It wasn't until I got another call from an alum of the institution saying there was an alumni picnic, and they say I should come to the alumni picnic. So I took my sister at the time, was a couple years older than me. She hadn't attended college herself. We went to the picnic. It was great. By the end, they had all gotten us in a circle. And they start to sing the Morehouse hymn. You put right hand over the left hand and they go through the whole hymn and there's a part where they get real low and they come back up and it crescendos. I looked over at my sister, she was crying and all excited. And I was all confused and young. At that moment, I knew there was something special about this place called Morehouse College. And that mm -hmm. sort of sealed my deal um, within a couple of weeks after that experience, I would say. I had signed my commitment letter to, to Morehouse. And I have to say the experience was even more enriching than that circle of men standing around me uh, and a couple of other perspectives as they sang our school's hymn. For me, Morehouse was an experience like no other because it was the first time in my life as a high achieving, and I'm using air quotes people, as a high achieving black male, I was no longer in the minority. Mm. And to remove the weight of being the high achieving black male in the mm -hmm. circle, it really allowed me to come into my own and be myself in a way that I don't know if I would be where I am today without that burden being lifted and without those connections and that network to those other Morehouse men or men of Morehouse at the time and how they impacted my everyday life, both in terms of the career decisions I made, how I saw Black people on the whole, my understanding of the diversity and the vibrancy of our community. I came into it with a narrow West Oakland, lower income perspective, and that was thrown out the window day one. Mm. So it was, a, it was a fascinating mix. Yes, I love that. The way you wrote and explained that first initial experience to HBCU culture and Morehouse, for myself, my family, went to Tennessee State University. For me, it was always an option. Never thought anything else up until I grew up. Right. Once I graduated high school, I, I went off and I started at the Art Institute of Atlanta because I'm really big on fashion. I thought that is where I wanted to get my credentials. Right. But after my first two semesters there, I said to myself, I'm not happy. Something about being here doesn't feel like home, doesn't feel like community. Yeah. And that's when I realized, girl, go home. Go home. Come on home. You got to go home. You got to yeah. go to where it feels like community and love and support. And that is the land of golden sunshine. For me, as you said, being at Morehouse helped you to become more of yourself and, and really get to know you. And you also spoke to learning about other Black people. People don't realize how diverse HBCUs are. Mm -hmm. We all may be Black, but I promise you, we are all not the same. <laughs> at all. 
<laughs> completely different, yes. you know? But there's one thing that we always, always connect with, and that's a good crowd surf. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes. So it's interesting that now there's been a rise in popularity with attending historically Black colleges. And yeah. my next question is, with the rise in popularity and attending HBCUs, how has this changed the demand in students wanting to attend and the potential funding to helping those students? Ooh, talk about funding. We're getting right into it. Hey, look, you jump in the deep end, uh, you know, perennial challenge and one that's getting worse, higher education and the cost of attending college, one of the highest sectors outside of the bubble burst of, you know, 07, 08 in the housing market, right? And so if you look at the cost of higher education today, versus two, three, four generations ago, you see a steep increase to say the least. What's unfortunate is you also see a dramatic increase in the number of lower income first generation students who are attending college. What that means is we're developing a business model that is putting a premium on higher education when you have a set of students who are supporting enrollment growth in higher education that can't afford to foot the bill. Mm, yes. And what the reality is today, majority of students are picking a college based off of how much they perceive they'll have to pay to go. Mm. Because at the end of the day, well, whether it's FAFSA or you've filled out a uncf.org scholarship application, the cost to go to college and to meet the needs of a student in real time is virtually impossible for the majority of students that are uh, attempting to go to college today. And so most students end up picking that local community college where the cost is three, four, sometimes five X lower than the cost of the major state school or an HBCU for that matter. And while HBCUs on the whole cost less than their peers as historically over-resourced, have the dollars to actually pay students to attend, pay that student a scholarship to essentially select attendance at that institution over our lower resource HBCUs. And so while we see a dramatic increase in applications mm -hmm. and the untimely deaths of George Floyd, the big push by the Black Lives Matter movement, the recognition that even during a pandemic, race still matters. We have seen a huge increase in applications to our institutions, but the reality is yield is not up. Mm. Overall in the last 10 years, HBCUs have seen a, a modest decline, one to 2% decline in their overall enrollment. And quite frankly, a loss of market share in terms of the number of black students attending these institutions. And at the end of the day, we believe it fundamentally comes down to finances. Yes. Most HBCUs are known as not giving out a lot of scholarships. For a person like me who could say, I got a full ride to Morehouse, mm -hmm. I realize there's a lot of privilege in that statement because 75% of the community was struggling to make ends meet, didn't mm -hmm. have those uh, institutional resources to close that gap. And that's a challenge. It's why UNCF, as one of the largest scholarship providers, the largest scholarship provider outside the federal government, giving over 10,000 students grants every year, we know the importance of 
closing that financial gap for students. Mm -hmm. But the reality is until there's a real reckoning for the historic wrongdoings of these institutions from a resource standpoint, HBCUs are gonna continue to struggle to convert those students that would love to be on that campus, but can't afford it. Look at the endowments of HBCUs compared to what I like to call the uber rich university. About a hundred or so institutions with over a billion dollars in endowment assets on their books. When you start talking about a billion dollars, billion with a B, and you say, oh, if we are taking 5% off of that every year, giving it to our institution, you're giving your institution $50 million a year, 50 with an M. There are HBCUs with budgets less than $50 million on an annual basis, let alone free residual income that's just been put into the institution every year. And I love the work of the Harvards and the Stanfords and most recently Emory, removing the need for students to take out need-based loans. That's a point of privilege. Our endowments are 100 times less than the uber-rich university. Mm -hmm. Even more importantly, on an annual basis, those uber-rich universities get about 250 million in annual gifts and contracts compared to an average of $2.5 million to HBCU. What happens is HBCU are primarily tuition-dependent institutions. What yes. that means is I need you to pay a full cost so I can give a scholarship to another student. But if you can't pay full cost, I can't give a scholarship to that other student. And so it becomes an interesting catch-22 where we allow a lot of students to be accepted but those students don't choose to come because mm -hmm. the financial burden is just too heavy. And we're competing in a very tough market as many more higher ed institutions struggle to diversify their student population. And so as a high achieving, I'm using air quotes again, because we know that <laughs> system's not made for everyone. Right. right. But as a high achieving black student, the world is your oyster today, um, especially when it comes to receiving scholarships. And that's why you see some of these students graduating from high school with 10, 15, $20 million in scholarship offers mm -hmm. because these institutions are actively courting those students in a way that HBCUs just can't compete. Oof. When it comes to overall the lack of resources and all that you said, that's all that I thought about. It really comes down to how we can give HBCUs more resources, funding, helping those students to be able to get a college education and not have to be in debt once they leave. Hey. It's something that we definitely have to expose mm -hmm. because the truth of the matter is a lot of us myself, you, and those who are HBCU graduates, besides the older generation, like my mother, who is not in debt for getting education, because like you said, the tuition, she paid out of pocket. Yes. She worked and could pay right. it out of pocket. Yes. That was not my case, especially with me having to pay out of state tuition. <laughs> it's something that we all need to consider and unite on when it comes to trying to get more students into college without having the stress of thinking about how they're going to pay for it or right. how much debt they'll be in once they leave. Speaking of resources and lack thereof, you mentioned the pandemic. May you speak on how 
historically Black colleges and university students have been affected by the pandemic? Woo, you know what they say. When America gets a cold, Black America gets pneumonia. It holds true as we reflect on the pandemic as well. We know that within the Black community, COVID has had devastating impacts. More deaths, more hospitalizations, fewer vaccines, fewer resources going into those communities. Um, mm -hmm. And more importantly, as we start to feel the economic downturn and the tail of that economic downturn, now that all the stimuli are stopping, we know that the real impact is yet to come. As institutions, who enroll high numbers of those first-generation low-income students, those disproportionately impacted by this unprecedented pandemic, we're very concerned that many students will opt out of pursuing a college education to, back to your earlier point, just meet their financial needs, their family's financial needs, their community's financial needs, because so many people don't see a way out that allows them to take on debt and experience the traumas that are coming out of this pandemic and do both and. And yeah. so that trade-off is going to become real, real for many of our uh, students as to do I secure resources now to stabilize my life or do I pull that off to improve it in my future? And in so many cases, this idea of firefighting, the planning for today to get through today has been the prevailing narrative for so many in the Black community that we don't do that long-term planning. We don't do that long-term investment because we're just trying to make it through that next day. And I fundamentally believe that's where we are as a community today, following the effects of uh, this unprecedented pandemic. When I look at all of those things, I have to say that ultimately I was very excited by some wins that came out in the pandemic. I think we saw a set of HBCUs pivot so quickly to secure their students, their faculty, and their staff health and public safety. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how inefficient or not effective our institutions could be, but boy, oh boy, did our institutions galvanize around this crisis to ensure not only were their students and the individuals on their campus safe, but that their communities were safe. HBCUs yeah. became spaces and places where people could get tested, get a vaccine, et cetera, that those became community destinations for Black people to get the services that they need, part one. Part two, for the first time in a long time, dare I say, as long as I've uh, been living, when the pandemic hit, HBCUs received a disproportionately higher share of federal resources. And I have to thank the work of UNCF, our leader, Dr. Michael Lomax, as well as Rodriguez Murray, who leads our public policy and government affairs work for mm -hmm. advocating on behalf of these very storied institutions that typically just look as far back as Katrina, get the short end of the stick when mm -hmm. it comes to crisis response support. But this time HBCUs received a disproportionate number. And I have to say for the first time in a long time, these last two years saw HBCU balance sheets greatly improve because the resources they deserve were finally provided to them. 
Now, again, I have real questions around what happens in the next year that's coming up in the year after that, because that was a short term measure. But what it showed me, what it showed people within our sector of work driving HBCU improvement and transformation, that not only does the resourcing help, but when the resources come in, our institutions make decisions that benefit their students. So whether it was helping students get home, helping students stay on campus if they felt like on campus was a safer place to be or reducing debt. Wilberforce being one of the first institutions not only is the first black private institution founded by black people in the mm. state of Ohio, in the country worldwide, the country at large, that's one of the first institutions to say, we're going to remove this devastating debt on their students. And as you can see, if our institutions had the resources, a lot of the policies that, again, I go back to these uber rich universities, would implement are the same strategies we would provide to many more low income first generation students. When I compare that enrollment to HBCUs of those low income first generation students, 75% low income, 60% of first generation respectively, you're talking about teens represented at the uber rich. When you start talking about low income, first generation and black, you're talking about single digit figures represented on those campuses. When you talk about low income, it's been sub 20% for the last two, three, four decades. Why? Because it's a strategy there to continue to propagate for those that have, right? These are institutions where on an annual basis, they have all the resources. I do have to thank the Harvard and the Yales of the world too, because they said, we don't need those government resources. So that was a altruistic move that I really appreciated on their behalf. But why did they do that when the government could have said, you know what, there's a need curve here and we need to put the resources where the need is, not just spread the wealth. I think sometimes America's push to ensure everybody eats at the apple this lift all boats strategy is most of the time detrimental to the communities that need it the most. And so I do appreciate that much of the public policy work that came out during that time really said, and where is the need? When that question was answered, we saw many more resources go to HBCUs. Now I say that many more resources, I would be remiss if I didn't say, and there's so many more that still need it. The resources that have come to our institutions are temporary stopgap measures. For the most part, those resources have been expended. And there's real concern around the go forward strategy, especially as I said, the community most impacted continues to try to enroll in these institutions. And so we still need to resolve that. And some people will say, oh, but there's been so much philanthropic giving. And you know, you thank the Reed Hastings and Patty Quillings of the world, the McKinsey Scotts of the world for giving substantive gifts to institutions, HBCU specifically, for the first time. I did an analysis of the 10 largest gifts gone to um, PWIs versus HBCUs. And prior to COVID, the onslaught of gifts from Reed Hastings and McKinsey Scott, among others, the largest single gift to an HBCU was just $30 million. Wow. You know the largest gift to a PWI? <laughs> $1.6 billion yep. with the B. Capital B. A capital B. It's a whole B, all caps. B-I-L-L-I-O-N. 1.6 billion. And you know, Mike Bloomberg is a very rich man. But Johns Hopkins, the recipient of that, is also the number one institution in the country when it comes to annual contracts secured from the federal government. 
So again, it's a story of wealth begets wealth and a place where higher education isn't meeting the needs of this increasingly lower resource student population. And you just wonder what would happen if resources like that went to HBCUs where the need was greatest. And I also have to thank Mike Bloomberg, just to be fair, right? He just come out with his uh, $750 million charter school push, as well as gave many resources to black medical programs during COVID to reduce the debt of black medical doctors being produced by HBCUs. And so this is not a, an attack on Bloomberg as much, but it is a question to the rest of philanthropy. Are we putting the resources where the resources are needed in a way that really makes sense. And I think that's an open question that COVID and the onslaught of resources that have come from that shows that when you put the resources in the communities that need it, the community does right by those resources and makes good on what the expectations objectives of those resources were and could be. Yes. One point that I really want to highlight is the truth that when HBCUs are able to receive the resources, even have a piece of what these other institutions, society is shown what HBCUs are really founded on. And that is community. Yes. Knowing that a lot of us, if not all of us, are in the heart of these cities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm going from class to class, I would look across the street and see locals, families. We're not ducked off. We're right right there. Right. So being able to be a part of that community, knowing that these institutions said to themselves, we now have a responsibility to not only take care of our students, but to take care of our community and those that surround our campus. That alone is something to be said when it comes to HBCUs. And quite frankly, is a reason that I feel people should really advocate for them because it goes beyond just money, even though we need it. Yep. It's about people. Mm -hmm. And more so than just advocate, it needs to be amplified. It needs to be doubled down on. It needs to be fully invested, vested in, in a way that dramatically shifts these outcomes for the better. When uh, UNCF's Frederick D. Patterson Research Institute uh, released the social mobility report earlier this year, and when you looked at the number of students from an access standpoint that HBCUs enroll, we have institutions that have a 99% Pell eligible population and Pell eligibility is a proxy for lower income. I have an institution that had 75% zero EFC students. Zero EFC means you have zero expected family contribution. That means you are all the way to the left of the poverty scale trying to go to college, part one. Part two, when you multiply that access rate by that what we call success rate, graduating and then being employed, if you multiply that access by success, 88%, nearly 90% of all HBCUs end up in the 90th percentile on social mobility. 
What does that mean? That means that rural institution, Jarvis Christian in Texas, that big institution, Morgan State, just outside of Baltimore, the one in the heart of DC, Howard, the AU Center here in Atlanta, these institutions are taking students from places of economic disadvantage and moving them up significantly along the quintiles of income. Mm. But when we think about outcomes and value in higher education, so much of the value is put on the input metrics. What was your average SAT score? What was your average declination rate? The lower your acceptance rate at an institution, the higher you do in things like US News and World Report. And our question is, how can we move from exclusivity as a measure of value and impact to inclusivity and results? If you start talking about inclusivity and results, for those populations, HBCUs have been punching above their weight since their existence and doing so with a mindset of find a way, make one, because they get pennies on the dollar in terms of support for that work. And so we're really trying to push that within the group I lead, the Institute for Capacity Building. We're trying to figure out a way to bring to bear change management, continuous improvement practices, shared services, shared learnings in the HBCU space. Because historically, when you're an under-resourced institution, the first two things to go are professional development and deferred maintenance. Mm. Over time, when you're deferring maintenance and foregoing professional development, you get further and further away from that bleeding edge of innovation. Mm. And despite HBCUs been having pockets of innovation throughout, right? Because they're still overproducing, right? At some point, that lack of investment, that lack of free dollars to invest in tomorrow because we're so busy paying the bills of today, right? that we lose ground against the Harvards and the Yales and the Stanfords of the world because of those limited resources. And that find a way, make a way mentality becomes more difficult and more challenging, especially as the needs of our students continue to grow. When I think about why I went to Morehouse and I didn't know it at the time, but now having been in this space for a, a while, for years now, I know it was the sense of belonging that institution gave me that allowed me to flourish. And now you see all of this work around cultures of belonging and belongingness and all of those kinds of things happening at institutions that historically excluded Black students, now trying to figure out how to cultivate that. Well, guess who's cultivated it since they're founded? HBCUs, but they're not given the mantle of uh, institutions for which we can learn from because they are outcast, devalue, ostracized, because the system did not properly invest in them over their histories. And so mm. the question for us becomes, what happens if, let's get away with find a way, make a way mentality, uh, the do more with less. What would HBCUs do with more? Mm. And that's the question we're trying to push to the field. Suspend your belief, suspend your biases for a moment and look at the data. The data are real. The data are factual. The data are showing us that these institutions are worthy of investment. The question is, can we invest in them and then suspend our belief for a while? Because to do that kind of investment means to have an equity orientation. Here within the Institute for Capacity Building, we talk about racial justice equity. 
that mm. you have to have a race-based approach that not only looks to future solutions, but solves for past wrongs, if you're going to improve outcomes in communities that have historically marginalized. What that requires is investment and then some waiting. Because the expectation that you can go from under-resourced to well-resourced and pivot and change and do all of these things to get to the outcomes you know you could achieve if you've had that historic runway is a fallacy of thinking. And we need to find a way to get the funding community, supporters, et cetera, to invest in these communities for what they do today, as opposed to pushing them to do other things because their value today in and of itself is a cause for investment. The question then becomes, how do we give those resources and suspend our belief on what we expect institutions to do with those resources while HBCUs pivot? And UNCF through our Institute for Capacity Building is very excited to lead that charge to understand how we say, how can HBCUs amplify their already outsized impact? Yes, and speaking of the Institute for Capacity Building, what more can the general public do to assist in helping the ICB's mission? Yeah, ICB, the Institute for Capacity Building, was founded in 2006, the brainchild of our current president and CEO, Dr. Michael Lomax. We've been on a long journey since our founding, over 16 years ago today. We've learned a lot about what does it take to support lower resource institutions as they attempt to innovate. And there are three things that we've landed on that's critical to that work. Number one is a real understanding of the communities and spaces and places in which we're operating. That you cannot expect to change without an authentic level of engagement with institutions and what their challenges are, where their opportunities are, where their assets exist. You can't just come in with your solution and expect these institutions to adopt them whole hog. Mm. Like go work with these institutions because there's knowledge there, there's capability there, and you have to cultivate that from that space as opposed to come in from the outside and try to solve that. We call that being authentic. Yes. Authentically engage with these institutions on their strategic vision and their strategic journey. Number two, be compassionate. Mm. Suspend this input output sort of logical approach to what you think you need to do to get to where you're going. These institutions are human at their core. We are people doing great work. We are students taking big leaps, taking big chances to improve our lives. And we operate within a complex system, some of them systemically oppressive <laughs> to our institutions. And you need to have a little compassion that the people on these campuses are stressed, not just by the, the work that they have to do in their job description, but all the external pressures that are put on these institutions that really stifle innovation, growth, learning, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you have to trust. Yes. You have to find a way because you're meeting these institutions where they are and being authentic in how they show up and how you show up, because you're being compassionate, that you can build a real trusting relationship to go the long distance. Mm 
so many of the funding community, supporters of our institutions want this immediate change to happen. And when they don't see it, they have a distrust for the institution, not recognizing that there are a bunch of interdependencies to the one thing you might be interested in doing with an institution that could call it to fail or succeed. Mm -hmm. We have to trust that people are doing right by the mission and vision of those institutions and the work that you want to see done. And it may not be on your timetable, but that does not mean that it's not occurring. A lot of our work that we do with institutions today is grant funded. We're a 100% grant funded team. And a lot of our work has been partnering with these philanthropic organizations to say, slow down in terms of your expectations, because to do the kind of change work you want is fundamentally human. And at least in our spaces and places, cultivating that community of those humans to do that work is not just about good policies and procedures. It's mm -hmm. about behavioral changes and mindset changes and new beliefs that the world of the possible is possible for them. When I look to the field, and I say, what could you do to support these institutions? Our director of institutional support, Daryl Ann Lifehang, would say, act. If you can show up authentically, compassionately, and really engage in trust building with these institutions, we can do anything. If you really want to know about HBCU culture, you have to experience it. Hey. You have to understand it. You have to do your best to understand it. And one of the best ways to do that is attending homecoming. That's when we get to boast our true colors as a community. Everyone comes out for a homecoming. And it's something that we all look forward to throughout right. our year. Right. I really appreciate ICB's initiative. And I love this concept of ACT, being authentic, being compassionate and having trust for the process, trusting in the fact that you don't have to be a part of something to respect it. Support it. And support it, you know, so, and fund it. <laughs> All of that, <laughs> right? Um, you know, allyship is real. And, and I have to say that HBCUs would not be where they are today Mm -hmm. driving social mobility within the Black community, right? Fueling the Black middle class without a litany of supporters mm. across a bunch of different spectrums with a bunch of different perspectives, worldviews, purviews, et cetera. To do this work well will require that we unite in a way that we galvanize our energy behind these institutions, regardless of whether or not you were fortunate enough to experience it. Yes. And I think that that's true. And the best proxy to that that I always talk about is, do, can we understand the significance of women's colleges? Mm -hmm. Do we understand the significance of tribal colleges and universities? If those don't exist, so goes a whole worldview that we need to cultivate. Yes. Diversity within the higher education system is, in my opinion, its number one asset. Mm -hmm. especially as the demographics of this country changes, we want community colleges and vocational schools. We want Hispanic serving institutions and rural institutions and urban serving institutions. Like we need that diversity in so much of higher education and the support is built around chasing of the ivory tower. Mm. Everybody wants to be Harvard 
when we don't need that in our country, we don't, our students don't need that. That is not where we're going to solve for education and educational equity. Mm -hmm. And that's why that big push from exclusivity to inclusivity and success, how can we shift that? I would love to see the US news rankings that says the number one inclusive and results-oriented institution is X. Mm. And I'll tell you, there'll be some limiting factors for some of our number one, number two institutions today. And much of it has to do with who gets that opportunity. Yes. So many of our students on HBCU campuses, this was their opportunity. Mm -hmm. They took a shot on it. And these institutions took a shot on that student as well. But without those resources to meet students where they are, to wrap those students and solve for those external variables that have increasingly become internal. Gone are the days when an institution can say, well, I don't really care about your home life. Right. Like, it matters because it affects the productivity, effectiveness, and efficiency of the institution. But more importantly, it affects how a student can engage in his or her own learning journey. And mm. if we're not solving for that, we're doing those students a disservice, but for the majority of higher education and especially all, nearly all HBCUs, we don't have the resources to solve for that. Right. How do we start to pivot the conversation to that inclusivity and the need to put the resources where we're more inclusive versus exclusive? Yes, you know, um, one thing that I thought about was in having conversations with those that went to a PWI, the first thing they talk about are our housing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's understood simply because how things differ from PWI schools and HBCUs. But of course, we already spoke to simply lack of resources. Yeah. I've been in a conversation about how HBCUs prepare students for the world. Yeah. Of course, for myself, I'm like, I'm here. And I trust that all of the tools that I've learned while attending an HBCU, being in those classes and experiencing that feeling of adjusting, really meeting a certain expectation that quite frankly, I lacked while in high school. And even when I was at the Art Institute of Atlanta, attending Tennessee State gave me an understanding as to what it means to have a work ethic and what it means to represent yourself and be a representation of your school in that same breath, a representation of the Black community. It's something that has helped me to understand my purpose. It gave me such a sense of pride and just knowing that I do, in fact, have what it takes to be great. So overall, I trust that with that sense of lineage of greatness to just want to be great because you surrounded yourself around a community that wanted that for you. Right. My question to you is, in what ways do you believe that HBCUs prepare students for the world? I'm a fan of threes. Mm -hmm. Not only are they simple to remember, but they're also times just really comprehensive. So I'm mm -hmm. going to give you three and I haven't even thought of all three yet. 
Okay. Uh, but the first has to do with that sense of belonging, mm. right? If we're really going to explore and cultivate the next generations of learners, doers, creators, believers in our society, right? You have to allow them to engage in a learning process where they can show up as their whole self. Yes. To minimize one's being and then force them to learn a different way of living without contextualizing their lived reality and what they're learning will historically be a challenge, historically, presently, and in the future will be a challenge to the higher education system. Now, I love the work that's moving towards culturally relevant pedagogy and culturally relevant curriculum. Seeing oneself and what they're learning is critically important to every learner. Like we must invest in that capability and do that kind of work. Yes. So, and HBCUs provide that. Mm -hmm. Number two, and you hinted at it, you have to set high expectations for students at Morehouse, we talk about putting a crown above every student's head and daring them to go tall enough to wear it. Wow. And we do that because if you're only entering environments where people are discounting your capabilities or assuming you are less than because of some metric on some page or their perceptions or own biases, you're limiting how much that student's going to grow. Mm. So you not only need to create an environment where they feel welcomed and a part of that culture, but then you need to challenge them to break the norms, do more than you ever expected in life. Mm -hmm. And then number three, and perhaps the most important, is you need to wrap people in networks of support that not only understand that lived reality and those high expectations, but it's a shoulder that you can cry on, a hand that you can reach out to, a question that you can ask. And that's what HBCUs do so well. I'm on a group lead chat with 170 of my 500 graduates from Morehouse College. We're still connected today. I talked to my freshman year roommate last night. I talked to my other roommate two nights ago. I'm working with the floor mate uh, from Morehouse uh, College. But that community, that network is so powerful. And as a first-generation low-income student, I look around, at, and I'm going to use air quotes again, people in podcast land, <laughs> at my successful friends. I have one running for mayor. I have one that's a partner in a firm, a CEO, a principal, a school teacher, you name it. My HBCU experience gave me a network now that I can draw upon 15 years later. I'm not going to say that, just know I'm a geriatric millennial. <laughs> Where now I've transitioned, dare I say, shifted my life trajectory because now this first generation student has a network of people who are there to support him when he needs it. And one of the biggest challenges first generation low income students happen, have is when they hit that wall. Mm -hmm. I had a former boss, her name is uh, Suzanne Wall. She's currently the president of Bennett College in North Carolina, she used to talk about how for many students, life is like driving a car. And for poor students, when they get into an accident, everything falls apart because they don't have airbags around them to swoop them up and make sure they're safe. But for students with wealthy families, strong backgrounds, multiple generations that have graduated from college, 
It's like airbags are deployed, you're airlifted out of the car, you put into another car and you're off sailing again. <laughs> For most low income students, they're back at the lot trying to negotiate a new car and they mm-hmm. just have to restart every time they hit a bump in the road. And as a first generation student who's been a trailblazer in his own right for many different occasions, it happens even after you're successful, even after you graduate, after you get that first job, who's there guiding you on those next life milestones? For many students, they are continually the first in their family to do those things. And those airbags don't always deploy. Right. My airbags today come from my network. Yes. And the foundation of that network was born at Morehouse College. Mm. And that's what's really important. And when I think around what the value HBCUs provide, they give you that sense of belonging so you can do your best. They give you high, they set high expectations for you so you do more than you ever thought you could. And most importantly, they connect you with people who are there for you and to support you and are doing the best and more than they thought they could in their own right. And it's that web that I think is the value HBCUs provide, not just to the graduates, but to the communities and generations of students that flow out of that. Wow. Yes. Everything that you said is truly felt. It's life-changing. And it makes you gain a sense of pride for yourself in saying, I know who I am and I was able to really come into myself and establish that safely while being encouraged by my peers and my teachers. That is, it's everything. Coming into my final questions for you, I would like to pivot back to the Institute for Capacity Building. And I'm wondering if you have anything new and exciting to report. Oh, well, we need to do a whole nother podcast on this because we have so many things that are new and exciting to report. We are building communities of practice around HBCU improvement and transformation in a way that six years ago, when we started this work in our career pathways initiatives, we could not have fathomed how successful and energizing this work has been for UNCF and our institutional partners at both public and private HBCUs, as well as PBIs, or predominantly Black institutions. We have an an amazing new activity that we'll be launching to the public in a few weeks. I can't say it today because it's embargoed. If you catch me at South by Southwest on March 9th, I'll do a formal presentation as we hope to also release the press release that day as well on something that we think from a digital infrastructure, a technology integration perspective, has an opportunity to really pivot what the future of an HBCU could and should perhaps look like. And then in addition to that work, we've done some great things around mental health. For students, we had our Unapologetically Whole conference a few weeks ago, where we've engaged over 500 students and really trying to remove the taboo nature of mental health and mental health needs. As we know, within the Black community, we're hard-pressed right? To reach out when it's a mental health issue. And so we really are understanding and trying to lean into that whole sense of belonging and making sure that we're tackling those student initiatives as well. And then there's a bunch of other things that I won't bore you with today, but do look to the launch of our new website, 
It is happening at the end of March, uh, where many of the much of the work that we're doing will be displayed in a new way as we look to 2022 to really grow the influence and awareness of our Institute for Capacity Building and the great work we're doing alongside some amazing institutions and institutional leaders. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. We are looking forward to seeing all that ICB does and continues to do. Lastly, I would really like to end this conversation with speaking about the United Negro College Fund. And for those of you that are unaware, the United Negro College Fund is an organization founded in April 25th, 1944 by Frederick D. Patterson. UNCF's mission to build a nationally recognized pipeline of taking underrepresented students and assisting them to becoming highly qualified college graduates has resulted in over 500,000 students receiving college degrees. Now, I know that one of the ways to support and get involved with UNCF is through volunteer work, but may you share other ways that the public can get involved and help continue to move UNCF's mission forward. Yes, there's so many ways you can get involved. We're obviously, as you said, a major scholarship provider. We take donations to support that scholarship program from individuals. And the reality is every dollar counts because collectively we're much stronger than we are individually. And so there are ways to give as well there. Really get engaged with your local office, UNCF office. UNCF has 22 offices across the U.S. where you can do some of the local on the ground work with our institutions. Follow our public policy work on our website, uncf.com. We really have to push the federal government to support our institutions with federal dollars, which is a major resource uh, within the higher ed community. And we can't do that without the public's voice signing on and advocating for those missions and priorities. And then most importantly, talk about HBCUs with your friends, right? Promote these institutions, get your sweatshirt, whether or not you win. We have Nike sweatshirts out there and University of Tennessee sweatshirts out there that you wear just because you like the sweatshirt. How about you wear these institutions because you like the institution? So whether it's St. Ogg's or Tennessee State University, find your local HBCU, find the HBCU that your friend or your family member went to and rock their wares because the more people know about these institutions, the more they'll realize how valuable they are. And ultimately, it'll pivot their reputations in a way that this resource conversation will be a thing of the past because we know if you truly understood HBCUs, the investments will flow. Absolutely. That last sentence really hit the nail on the head. And speaking of ways to support UNCF, Taylor has been a proud supporter of the United Negro College Fund and sponsor for several years for the A Mind Is Gala. The agency is very excited to participate in this year's gala that's happening next month. To learn more about UNCF, please visit their website at uncf.org. And you can also learn more about Taylor's strategies, previous involvement with the organization, and our diversity column on our website. Thank you so much, Ed, for speaking with me about the importance of supporting historically Black colleges and universities. Again, as a product of the Tennessee State University, I will always be an advocate for more students attending HBCUs and being a part of a culture that is truly like no other. Well, thank you, Ebony, for having me. I am humbled by the invitation. And thank you to Taylor for your continued support of UNCF and the work of HBCUs. I appreciate being here. Yes, of course. And lastly, in light of the recent HBCU bomb threats, and for those who are unaware, 
14 HBCUs have received bomb threats in the beginning of the earlier part of this year. Universities such as Kentucky State, Xavier University, Fort Valley, Spelman, Howard, just to name a few, had to cancel classes temporarily and go on campus lockdown as a result of these threats. Unfortunately, this is not the first time something like this has happened. Any parent, guardian, and child could possibly be deterred from attending an HBCU because of this, but I am very happy that we are having this conversation because I believe that conversations like these is what encourages and instills hope in those who are considering attending an HBCU. So again, I just really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. And just to the terrorist threats, Yes. HBCUs are unbowed and we will not let the misguided few dictate our collective future. And so we are going to keep on pushing on as we try to execute the mission, the historic and the present one of these storied institutions. And so let's move forward together. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Shapers of Influence podcast. I am Ebony Baker, and I look forward to you tuning into our next episode. Well, that wraps up this episode of Taylor's Shapers of Influence. To learn more about what we do at Taylor, you can find us at taylorstrategy.com. Looking for more episodes of the podcast? Find us wherever you stream stuff. We're on iTunes and other major streaming platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Taylor Strategy. Thanks for stopping by and tuning in. Peace.